It seemed that the land would be torn by war <laughs> or saved by a miracle at last. <laughs> and that miracle appeared in me, Mouse. <laughs> The pod in the cast. <laughs> Woo, good job. Thank you, thank you. That's a that was a tricky one. Yes. I figured all that effort deserved a big no cheer. I, I tried to put in a lot of vibrato, but I don't think I could match. <laughs> I don't know who actually sang that song. But I do know that, as in Cinderella, he was getting hit in the throat by a flute for the whole thing. Some guy named Fred Darian. Fred Darian. It's just... (laughs) It's ridiculous. Right. I kind of struggled with this one because there are so many good songs. There are. It's almost like, you know, the Sherman Brothers write good songs. It's it's a bit like that, yes. But, you know, I could have done... uh, I I really thought about I'm the Magnificent Marvelous Pod Podum cast. (laughs) Uh, But you could even do, like, to and fro, pod and cast. Yep, yep. But I think that the opening song is really, which is just called The Sword and the Stone, is really underrated. Mm-hmm. I would put it up there with like Circle of Life as a great start to a Disney movie. Mm. In just two like verses, it tells you everything you need to know. It's really kind of beautiful, even though the singer is ridiculous. <laughs> to be fair, I do think it sets up the tone for a different movie. <laughs> Well, maybe that's what the excessive vibrato is supposed to let you know this is actually a really silly movie. Maybe, maybe. But that miracle appeared. It did indeed. Let's start the (laughs) show! Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing higgitus. <laughs> Don't know what it means, but it feels right. There you go, there you go. This week on the program, we are continuing the Silver Era. With a movie that has a lot of silver metal in it. <laughs> yes, that will do. And that is, of course, 1963's The Sword of the Stone, directed by Wolfgang Reitherman, and that's it. <laughs> it's true. One director? What? One credited director. Yep. So, Mom, what does this movie mean to you? This is another one of my favorites. We never owned the pre-recorded VHS when I was growing up, but we must have had it recorded off the TV because I know I watched it several times. I have watched this movie so many times, I felt like I could quote along with it when we were watching it the other day. Mm -hmm. It's just so funny. And we owned the clamshell VHS in our family. Oh, yeah, we did. Ever since you were a baby. It was a present. One of the first two Christmases, we were a family, so... And then, of course, I bought the Blu-ray, not realizing about the Blu-ray restoration. (laughs) I was like, it's the 50th anniversary edition. It's gotta be great. They won't ruin this. (laughs) I don't think they do ruin it. 
but uh, it's not great. It has a few problems. But anyway, I love this movie. What is it about this movie that you love? It's just so funny. I think I just really love Merlin, actually. (laughs) He cracks me up so much. Sure, he's a blue triangle. He is. He's very simple design, but he has so much trouble with his beard. (laughs) (laughs) He has much trouble doing all kinds of ordinary things. (laughs) It really is a burden. (laughs) You're like, dude, don't you own a pair of scissors or even a knife? He has all kinds of future... Fiddle, futuristic fiddle faddle <laughs> is a laser <laughs> can't he you know travel to the future and go to a barber or something he doesn't want to he, he doesn't wants... want to he wants to have the long down to his knees beard even if it is problematic he's a beard guy he is as my friends would say <laughs> yeah indeed i also like this movie a lot i've also seen it a million times as you say we had that clamshell <laughs> i don't feel like it was a childhood favorite i kind of liked it more over time and then i i have to say i have cooled on it just a little bit i like this movie a lot but i i don't think i like it as much as you which is fun yeah what is enjoyable about it as you said is that this to me is the first disney movie that I would characterize as a straight-up comedy. Mm -hmm. Obviously, all the Disney films to date have had some element of comedy, even Bambi, the tiniest, (laughs) tiniest bit. But this one, the jokes are really what it's about and kind of, for better and for worse, like, all it has. Like, that's what's holding this movie together is the jokes. True. More than anything else. Yep. And it is basically non-stop laughs mm-hmm. except for that opening song and then the bit at the end where they're like okay we, we have a little bit of story now okay sorry <laughs> about that but to me it really is just a comedy and it is very funny and extremely enjoyable and highly quotable for sure yep i say all the time like what a mess what a medieval mess just while looking at my own life <laughs> it's a very good movie mm-hmm uh, it's about a knife and a rock. <laughs> what does the Arturian legend mean to you? Because, of course, that's where this all starts. This is right. sort of an adaptation of King Arthur, sort of not really at all. Well, it's taken from T.H. White's The Sword and the Stone, which is part of The Once and Future King. So I saw this movie first, of course, before I'd ever really read any King Arthur legend stuff or watched any other movies. And I found myself quite disappointed by the fact that none of the other Arthur legend stuff is funny. (laughs) (laughs) It gave me quite the wrong idea (laughs) of of the King Arthur stuff. And so there is a little humor in T.H. White stuff, but it, it starts to feel like a slog. Yeah, no, it's it's quite grim. The, mm-hmm. the Arthurian legend is really interesting to me because of what you're talking about, where it's like, it's super famous, super well known. It, you know, sets the foundations for so many tropes that are still fundamental to media now. Yeah. And yet it's not really popular and nobody really likes it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure not nobody. Right. But yeah, the original, well, the original, I mean, obviously it's just, there's a ton of Arturian legends and folklore and 
historians agree that there probably never even was a King Arthur at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just all made up. But the original version, such as it is, the kind of first written version that is like tried to be comprehensive to a certain extent and tried to incorporate a lot of the different myths. So if you want to pick a single text as the quote-unquote original, that would be the Death of Arthur, written by Sir Thomas Mallory in the 15th century. Mm-hmm. Which just sounds like a real up story right there. Yeah, and it's incredibly bleak. Yep. And incredibly depressing. Yep. And it's all about how King Arthur represents the triumph of intellect and romance over brute force and cynicism, except actually he completely fails and everything <laughs> descends to war and everything is awful. There are incredibly dark adult themes. Yeah. It's a real train wreck tragedy of a story (laughs) right again the arturian legend it occupies such a weird place in history because most versions of the story are about arthur failing and they're depressing and they're bleak and a lot of the adaptations are too but then he also represents this like very nationalist vision of like england (laughs) at its best for a lot of uh (laughs) british people and so it's this very strange cultural place Mm -hmm. and even more so in like american pop culture maybe even pop culture in general where like we have a ton of king arthur movies and books and whatever and what have you they're almost all critical and or commercial failures (laughs) and we were talking about this last night i think it's interesting that there isn't really like a canonical movie version of this yeah. Because I feel like for a lot of fairy tales, there are or there's a few. Like with Peter Pan, depending on your generation, like maybe you had the Mary Martin version, the Disney animated version, or the 2003 live action version. Even Robin Hood, which like King Arthur is just a bunch of different stories that have been told and retold a gazillion times. Like yeah. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is kind of the canonical version of that with a lot of other popular versions directly reacting to that Mm -hmm. in some way or another. You know, you really like fantasy and and sword and sorcery things, and yet you don't like King Arthur. (laughs) King Arthur is more like a series of images than a story that people know, than like a plot, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting to me i feel like for a lot of people the disney movies of fairy tales are like the canonical versions of them this one definitely not (laughs) (laughs) i mean it may be all that some people know but it doesn't seem like it's very well known no it's not a super beloved disney film it did all right it made like four point something million dollars on a three million dollar budget yeah but it was not super critically well received and no it's definitely not as beloved now as like any of the princess movies for example it's just a prince movie i mean king (laughs) no there's there's only uh two female characters i know oh no there's squirrels you could say there's four if you count the two female squirrels but it is extremely light on female characters there's one female character who you could call a character right and she's the best but (laughs) no it's true this is not this is kind of a cult classic kind of like alice in wonderland maybe even more so i I don't know it's hard to say like any Mm -hmm. disney film is gonna have a lot of popularity and staying power well okay any golden or silver era <laughs> Disney film. I say thinking about some of the experimental era films that definitely don't exist. Nobody has watched Home on the Range since it came out. 
<laughs> but it is. It's a it's a good movie, and if if this podcast helps people rediscover it, then good. You're due for a rewatch. It's a ton of fun. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about the background of the movie a little more. Mm-hmm. Walt Disney bought the rights to this thing in 39. Again, this was part of the pre-World War II. Everything's going to be fine. We're all going to live forever. Let's buy the rights to 700 movies. Yeah. Uh, and he specifically purchased the rights to T.H. White's The Sword and the Stone. The only part of the Arthurian legend that would make a good Disney movie, I think. And even still, they they changed everything. But they that's did okay. change a lot, yes. But you pretty much have to throw out the entire story if you're doing a different part for a children's movie. <laughs> yeah. Nearly. So, of course, then it gets shelved for World War II. I mean, work hadn't really started on it. So to right. say it got shelved, work did not really start until after 101 Dalmatians. Now, as we talked about, Roy Disney at this time kind of advocating for let's close down the feature animation division. And Walt was kind of feeling like maybe that's what needed to happen. (laughs) But after the release of 101 Dalmatians was a big success, Walt was like, all right, we're going to do two more. Yeah. Uh, He said two animated projects were in development. And those projects were, uh, one was, of course, The Sword and the Stone, which was really being championed and taken over by Bill Peet, who we talked about last week. His biography is, his autobiography, I should say, is both a very important source of Disney development information during this time and is also uh, him (laughs) complaining about grudges he had with everyone else who worked (laughs) at Disney, including Walt. So it's... You know, everything he says maybe take with a little grain of salt. But he was definitely one of the most important people on 101 Dalmatians, if not the most important person. And he's really championing Sword in the Stone, and he's working on it basically alone. Mm -hmm. At least to hear him tell it. Yeah. At the same time, a group of a lot of the Disney all-stars at the time, including Mark Davis, Ken Anderson... Wolfgang, Reitherman, Miltkall, and others. They spent about six months developing a script for, I hope I say this right, Chanticleer. I think it's Chanticleer. I don't know. Chanticleer. Think, think of a, uh, pronounce it French. Well, in French, it's a, it's written completely differently. Yeah. Uh, and I think it would probably be Chanticleer. But uh, when I'm wrong, my father, my French fluent father, <laughs> will let me know. But yeah. either way, it is a French play by Edmond Rostand, who is best known for uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, the best play that was ever written. <laughs> and basically, it's a metaphor for like idealism versus cynicism mm-hmm. and naturalism, where all the characters, all the actors are in ridiculous animal outfits. Yep. Comparisons to Animal Farm are not really, like, good or relevant, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of the vibe in that, you know, yeah, it's about farm animals, but it's a metaphor for, like, grown-up topics. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how this would be a Disney movie. When I read that this was the, like, thing that they were committed to adapting, I was like, how would that work? How would you do an animated movie based on that? And then I found (laughs) out, technically, Rockadoodle is an animated movie based on that. And it was like, oh yeah, so it would be bad. Yes, it would be awful. <laughs> it would be a complete nightmare. <laughs> Good to know. Anyway, but they were they were kind of all in on this because they are like, well, it's an animal movie and Sword in the Stone is a people movie and 
Bill Pete was like, there's no way you can make a Disney kids movie based on this very serious play. And they're like, there's no way you can make a Disney kids movie based on this very serious book. (laughs) So this culminated in a pitch meeting with Walt after these six months. The other group showed him this like manuscript they were working on, these elaborately illustrated storyboards, mm-hmm. these large color pastel paintings. They apparently had songwriters in to write songs and record <laughs> demo music. Walt listened to all of this. Ken Anderson asked what he thought, and according to Bill Pete, Walt replied, just one word, and then he said a curse word. <laughs> and then... Bill Pete came in, he had storyboards, and he mostly had jokes. He showed some of the gags with Merlin and the owl. He showed Merlin packing everything into one suitcase, which he was very proud of because that was his own invention. And (laughs) now again, according to Bill Pete, everyone in the room was forced to agree that his (laughs) vision was so much better. And Walt was very angry at the people working on Chanticleer. So regardless of whether or not, as in Pete's book, everybody thought he was the best and Walt crowned him emperor of the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly it is true that out of that meeting, uh, Chanticleer gets canceled and they go forward with Bill Pete's Sword in the Stone. And also certainly true is that pretty much everyone working on this movie hated Bill Pete and kind of hated the movie. (laughs) Wolfgang Reitherman, who of course is the director, yeah. apparently did not like working on this movie very much. And especially he did not like the design of Merlin. Hmm. He brought all these like illustrations from other books and other like depictions of the Arturian legend and was like, look at all these. Like he's supposed to be wise mm-hmm. and regal and important. And he has all these like details on him. Yeah. And Bill Pete was like, no, it'll be funny if he's a triangle. though." Yes. Also, it's cheaper to have no detail. <laughs> Plain blue robe, much cheaper than a uh, robe with, you know, uh, stars and symbols on. <laughs> yeah, not for nothing. Pete also takes credit for designing Madame Mim, saying that when I designed Madame Mim, who was this frowsy old lady, <laughs> frowsy is a fun word, Walt yep. said, Bill, why can't we have a big, tall dame with black hair? <laughs> I said, Walt, we always do that. She has to be a counterpart to Merlin. He's an old eccentric, and so she has to be too. They have to match. And he describes them as being almost like an old married couple. <laughs> He also takes credits for writing the lyrics to the Madame Mim song, which I'm pretty sure is just straight up not true. Yeah, probably not. But I do think this is kind of Bill Pete's movie. <laughs> if, if you want to pick who the auteur is, mm-hmm. you know, how much, what exactly specifics. Mm-hmm. But I do, it is, does seem to be generally accepted that that's broadly how it went. It does seem like during that time period at the studio, a lot of the artists and writers or whatever would just pitch ideas. They would just get ideas and they would get other people, you know, excited with them, kind of, you know, like with mm-hmm. this Chanticleer thing. They would be like, here, we could do this great story. Let me show you some cool pictures I've done. Here, you do some cool pictures to go with my pictures. You know, let's come up with a story pitch. And they didn't all get anywhere, obviously. You know, there's some pitches for... Uh, Don Quixote as well and you know a bunch of different things that never made it anywhere well that was the whole point of those concept artists who are the basis of the they drew as they pleased books the whole point is they drew 
as they pleased. They yeah. kind of got to draw whatever they wanted <laughs> when they were just working on concepts and they would occasionally pick up a concept and be like, hey, let's make a short based on this idea. Yeah. But that's that's a very Walt Disney thing is like, like just generate endless ideas, <laughs> you know, imagineering. <laughs> but at the same time, when you read about like, especially during this time in the 60s, it sounds very stressful because you spend six months working on your amazing Chanticleer pitch. Right. And then Walt Disney, who's not really working on animation at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Is still Caesar at the Colosseum giving you the thumbs up or the thumbs exactly. down on whether or not you've just wasted half a year of your human mm-hmm. life. Yep. Pretty wild. And so tensions were definitely high during the making of this movie. Nevertheless, I think at this point they kind of just couldn't make a bad movie. <laughs> Even when they're all annoyed, Wolfgang Reitherman is still a really good director and mm-hmm. they still, I don't know, the talent is just there. Right. Is this a good place for my Walt Paragoy sidebar or do you want that later? Go ahead. I don't know anything about this. <laughs> Walt Paragoy was the background stylist, so the head background artist for Sword in the Stone. He started out as an in-betweener at Disney when he was much younger. He didn't like it much because, of course, artists don't like the rote in-betweener stuff, right? It's assembly line. It's you have to draw the same thing over and over, slightly different. It's no fun. Boo. But he eventually got promoted to background artist for Sleeping Beauty. And he didn't love that either, though it was better because, of course, he had to copy Ivan Earl. Right. Though he claimed, Paragoy claimed that he could do Ivan Earl better than Ivan Earl could. <laughs> <laughs> the, the egos that the were egos rampant. are so big. This guy especially <laughs> had a gigantic ego. However, oh, man. <laughs> um, so he, he worked as a background artist for Sleeping Beauty. He also got to work on some other projects, including um, at Disneyland, painting the miniature castle in the storybook land ride. Basically, he would just paint on anything that held still. <laughs> then he was actually chosen to be the head background stylist for 101 Dalmatians. So you remember how last time you were talking about how you loved those backgrounds and the colors mm-hmm. and all that? That was him. Well, there you it's go. It's Walt Paraguay's backgrounds. It was all his ideas for that. And he basically was like, this is where I got to be myself. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, 101 Dalmatians, Walt thought looked like crap. <laughs> Disney, I should say, because these guys are both named Walt. It's a little confusing yeah, if yeah, I'm not yeah, careful. Yeah. So Paragoy, again, got to be the background stylist for Sword in the Stone, this movie, but he toned it down. <laughs> he basically, you know, went back to more of what he thought of as the boring, old-fashioned backgrounds, <laughs> as opposed to the more modernist. He is a very modernist artist, which, you know, talking yeah. about the 50s and 60s as modern, whatever. That's just how it is. And you know what? I like the backgrounds in these better than 101 <laughs> <laughs> They're still really good. I mean, he's he's... He was ama- an amazing colorist, everybody always said. Right. But it's it's true, though. Bill Pete also talked about he liked 101 Dalmatians a lot more and felt like he had more freedom on mm-hmm. it. It seems like 101 Dalmatians is kind of the type of movie that it seems like a lot of the staff at Disney wanted to make. Mm-hmm. This is kind of in the middle of their sensibilities and Walt's. Yep. It's, you know, still sort of a fairy tale. It's magic. Mm-hmm. It's old timey. All this stuff Walt likes. Yep. Uh, you know, the again, the beautiful storybook opening with the song and everything. Yep. 
But it has that more modern sense of humor yeah. and even some more modern music. I mean, the uh, the dishwashing song, <laughs> whatever that's called, is just straight up a jazz song. Yeah. And Merlin is like scatting through it and through kind of all the songs. Yeah. There are some other guys we should talk about who are very important to this movie. And those are, of course, the Sherman brothers. Yes. Now, George Bruns is back for this one. He does the score. Yeah. The Sherman brothers wrote the songs. Yes. The Sherman brothers, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, they wrote for a ton of Disney movies. Yep. And in fact, a ton of movies in general, because they have written more motion picture musical song scores than any other songwriting team in film history. Yeah, it's believable. And now that the movie musical is mostly a genre that doesn't exist, that record will probably stand unbeaten forever. It's true. They could just pound them out. And they were all pretty good. Yes. Almost always very singable. They also use a lot of made up words. That's kind of one of their things. Yes. Think about Mary Poppins, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> right. Well, that is kind of their magnum opus. That's the score for which they won two Academy Awards, right? Yeah. So do you know what the first song the Sherman Brothers contributed to a Disney movie was? I should. As soon as you tell me, I'll be like, oh, of course. It was the Medfield fight song from the absent-minded professor Ah, two years before this. Well, I wouldn't have remembered that, but I am unsurprised that they did that song. Among some of the other stuff, there's a lot more movies we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. There's also uh, many of the Park songs, including It's a Small World After All, which is, of course, one of the most performed songs of all time. Yep. One of the most earwormy songs ever as well. They were very good at that. And they just kept doing it, I mean, more or less until 2018, Christopher Robin, the surviving Sherman brother, wrote two original songs for that. Mm -hmm. And that was the last one, and that probably will be the last one. They're amazing. Yeah. Like when George Bruns showed up, it's like, oh, it's so good to see you're here. <laughs> like we're, in, we're in good hands now. Welcome. And all the songs here, like I said up top, are really good and really memorable. Blue Oak Tree, maybe not. but <laughs> Well, you only get two lines of it. Overall, very enjoyable and memorable and very interesting kind of what they do with the songs in this movie. So we'll talk about it as we go. Yep. Not too much to say about the animation. The same technique was used that was used for 101 Dalmatians, basically. Yeah. But they also replaced uh, a previous animation technique, cleanups, which is where assistant animators would transfer the directing animator sketches by hand onto a new sheet of paper before copying them to an animation cell. They now would do touch-ups where they drew directly on the directing animator's sketches. Yeah. Which definitely contributed to the tension here <laughs> because... You're touching my art! Exactly. The assistants are drawing right on the director's art. <laughs> they're scared that they're going to mess it up. The people in charge of them are scared they're going to mess it up. Uh, but this movie looks pretty great. I mean, I, nobody messed anything up except for the Blu-ray transfer. <laughs> yeah. The cast is also interesting. Not really a lot of the Disney kind of players at this time. It's true. A few, and some of them, this is the only Disney movie they were in, which is like, what? You're allowed to only do one and done? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> the most important role, of course, is Merlin. 70 actors read for the part. Yeah. But according to Wolfgang Reitherman, none of them evidenced that note of eccentricity that we were seeking. <laughs> we wanted Merlin to be eccentric, but not hokey. And I do think the Merlin character in this 
it is a fine line to play. Yeah. He has to be smart and he has to be wise, but he also has to be cantankerous. That's something Bill Pete talked a lot mm-hmm. about. He was kind of, Merlin, is, his design is a little bit based on Walt. I mean, they say everybody's based on <laughs> Walt. Yeah, they say it's Walt's nose. And I'm like, maybe I just haven't ever seen his <laughs> nose properly because it didn't seem like this. It just same. looks like a nose. Yeah, what do you I mean know. Walt's nose? <laughs> Walt didn't have a distinctive nose and neither does Merlin. So yeah, okay. Well, maybe if you were up close to Walt, his nose, you know, took on more significance if he was cranky at you. I don't know. <laughs> that fine line was met by Carl Swenson, who kind of did nothing. I mean, uh, he did a lot of other things, to be fair, but he didn't do anything else of particular note. It's true, but I think he was great as Merlin. No, he's so good in this. That's the thing. Like, you kind of want him to be, you know, a Hans Conrad <laughs> where he's around as one of these Disney players. He didn't do anything else for Disney. No, he was one and done. Just dropped the mic, perfect performance, and left. (laughs) Junius Matthews as Archimedes, who is a Broadway actor, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, and who is, of course, also Rabbit in the Winnie the Pooh movies. Yes. Which he did for a while. We got uh, Sebastian Cabot, I think, as Sir Ector, Mm -hmm. who is a British actor. He's known for the TV sitcom Family Affair, apparently. I've never heard of that. I don't (laughs) know if you have. No. But he did a few Disney movies. He did. Uh, he's Bagheera and the Jungle Book, mm-hmm. most notably. So he actually stayed around, and he was the biggest name at this time. He was also narrator a lot. Oh, yes, he narrated the uh, the Winnie the Pooh shorts yeah, as well. Yeah, Do you know who the voice of Sir Pelinor is? Looks like Alan Napier. Yes, but do you know who Alan Napier is? Yes, Alan Napier is Alfred on the old Batman show. <laughs> That's right, in the 1960s Batman. That is Sir Pelinor. That's funny. I love Alfred in that show. He may be my favorite Alfred. <laughs> He's so great. I mean, that's pretty fair. That's a that's a good pick. I think they actually took a little bit of his actual, the way he looks for Sir Pelinor. Yeah, I think so. Because he's such a tall, skinny guy. With a mustache. Mm-hmm. The must. It, this is a mustachey movie, I have <laughs> to say. The 60s were a mustachey time. I, I see Mel Blanc actually got to make some sounds. Who is Mel Blake in this? The dogs, Tiger and Talbot. Okay. <laughs> that you see in one scene. Great. <laughs> and I think, it not it just like the same recording played several times? That's what it sounds like. Yeah, probably. Yeah. They, they, so, may have, okay. they may have totally just swiped him making dog noises from a Looney Tunes cartoon and just I pasted know. that in there. I don't know. Mel Blake, thank you for contributing five seconds of work to this movie. <laughs> Jenny Tyler is interesting. She is a true blue voice actor. She got her start in acting late enough that that could basically be what she did. (laughs) She's the girl squirrel in this. But she is the rare female voice actress who's done a lot of kind of silly voices. Because like, she's several of the barnyard animals in Mary Poppins Jolly Holiday (laughs) in that sequence. Yeah. I really have to shout out the man who voiced such as it is <laughs> our favorite character, which is Starving Wolf. Yes. Do you know the guy who voiced Starving Wolf? Who else he voiced did a very important Disney role. I was looking at him earlier. He does lots of roaring noises like he's the guy you get if you need a big, loud roar. But I can't I don't know exactly which one you're talking about. 
Oh, just a little guy named Mickey Mouse after <laughs> Walt gave up the role. Mickey Mouse, ladies and gentlemen, is in this movie wheezing as Hungry Wolf. That's so funny. Yes. I know he did Humphrey the Bear, who's one of my other favorite Disney characters in the short, shorts from shorts. He was primarily a sound effects guy. And I can believe it. When he couldn't make sound effects out of, you know, sound effects materials, he would just use his voice. Yep. All of his voices are like, he's the train engine from Dumbo. <laughs> he's the bees in Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. <laughs> yes. He made the clock sound effects of the crocodile from Peter Pan. Uh-huh. And the dragon Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> and I think that's really all there is to say about this movie. Or at least about the background for this movie. We could just talk about it now if you want. Let's do that. So I'll start us off right at the beginning with the mom status is completely not applicable for this movie. Zero Nobody's moms. got a mom. There are no moms. <laughs> Nothing. Not a one. Not, nary a one in sight. We have to presume everybody's mom is dead. It's true. You'd think there could be a mom for a K. Nope. No nope. mom. The opening credit song is overture style again. I I did like um, that the, the physical book, it looks like another physical book like Sleeping Beauty. I think so. There's a lot more text in the book than the just the lyrics of the song. And one of the lines you can see starts with, Beholdeth. King Uther fell sick of such a great malady. <laughs> it says beholdeth. Somebody wrote yes. Beholdeth. <laughs> and a whole bunch of guys tried to pick up the sword and they all messed up. And the miraculous sword was forgotten. It was a dark time. <laughs> well, it's a dark age because we're yeah. going to make dark ages jokes because yeah. we're done with Sirius now. Again, until the end of the movie, <laughs> basically. And we're starting in some scary woods. Mm -hmm. These scary woods will be important throughout. We see a scary wolf, which I don't know if it's supposed to be our favorite wolf. It looks kind of similar, but it's like all silhouette with red eyes. Right. This, this wolf actually looks a little creepy as opposed to a wolf later who just is comic relief. <laughs> and there's a squirrel and a hawk. The hawk will definitely be important later. Yeah. We are introduced right off the bat to Merlin, who is struggling with a well. Yep. Trying to pull the bucket up and complaining constantly. And here's where you get yes. the first one big medieval mess. And then he almost falls in the well. <laughs> Talk about how it's a dark age and an age of inconvenience. No electricity. No plumbing. The idea that they really hone into for Merlin in this movie is, well, if he's always seeing into the future and visiting the future and, you know, in the original Arturian legend, he's like living backwards. Yeah. Aging backwards, which they don't at least state outright in this. They don't, yeah. But like, if he has such a disconnected relationship to time, he is like a person from... The 1960s, you know, the <laughs> modern era, who has somehow been, is like almost trapped in medieval England yeah. and hates it. Yeah. And this version of Merlin is kind of my favorite version of Merlin or of like magical people in general. Mm -hmm. I feel like the good fairies are also this, where it's like someone who has so much magical power that they are completely disconnected <laughs> from reality yeah. because they never really have to interact with it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like uh, it's like rich people brain when you get to that <laughs> point where you're just so rich that you're, you know, like knives out rich or whatever, mm -hmm. where you're just like 
a complete lunatic with no skills. Yeah. It's like that, but with magic mm-hmm. and endearing instead of horrible. But I, I love that. I mean, Kid Who Would Be King, which is probably my favorite Arturian movie, has a great version of Merlin that leans into that, where he's just a dang weirdo. <laughs> yes. Because why would he need to have social skills? He can literally flick his fingers and get anything he wants at any time ever. Right. He's never faced an obstacle. <laughs> and this Merlin is kind of similar to that, which is great. Yep. Except he does face a lot of obstacles he in does. this movie. He but does. And he grumbles about them the whole time. Exactly. We also get to meet his owl, Archimedes the Educated Owl, who can talk. Yes. In human words. I think I like Archimedes even more than Merlin. <laughs> Obviously, the movie only works because they're together. Yes. But I love, I especially love whenever Archimedes is indignant. <laughs> and Archimedes, he's more grounded because he clearly has like a lot more knowledge. He's the highly educated yeah. owl. Well, I don't think he gets to travel in time like Merlin. He's Exactly. He's a lot more present in the past because that's where he, or I should say, you know, in that time, because that's where he lives. And whatever magic he may or may not have access to, it's not as much as Merlin. So he does know how to be a, for lack of a better word, person. (laughs) Whereas Merlin is just, and again, this is where I can actually kind of buy the argument that he was somewhat based on Walt, because it's like Archimedes is doing all the work. (laughs) He's preparing his pitch. And then Walt shows up from somewhere very far away and is like, it's bad. (laughs) Then leaves unhelpfully. But yes, and Archimedes is introduced because we have to do this joke whenever there's an owl character. His first lines are, who? Who? Yes. I'd like to know who is coming. Yes, because Merlin is predicting somebody is coming to tea. And it's a boy, and he he can't, he's not sure why this boy is important, but he knows it's important. This person is going to be there, and he's going to have to teach him. And then we kind of morph into seeing what the boy is doing at this time, and we meet Wart. (laughs) Right, and I should have talked about who voiced Wart, because three different people voiced Wart, and they all sound completely different. Because Ricky Sorensen was cast in the part who is an actual child actor, somebody who makes sense for this. Mm-hmm. And then he hit puberty <laughs> during the film's production. So Wolfgang Reitherman had his two sons, Richard Reitherman and Robert Reitherman. There's a mouthful. Yeah, no kidding. Just pick up lines? <laughs> I, I really wanted to find out more about this because it's such a strange decision. Yeah. Like... Why? Why? <laughs> if, if you're going to recast the part, recast the part. Have them redo the whole thing. The Maybe. art of dubbing exists at this time. You know, even yeah. if some animation was completed, you could still have your sons go back. Instead, it's just, it's totally bizarre because his voice changes in every scene and multiple times in every scene. It's true. I always just assumed that he just, talked differently to try to express different things. I mean, because I never knew it was three people doing the voices, even though it does list all the voice actors at the beginning in the credits, but it doesn't tell who plays what. So the only thing I can assume is maybe they didn't want to spend the money to hire someone else, or there was a time constraint for, and they didn't want to redub everything. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't. I would love to know. Ruin the movie. 
but it is an odd decision they made. It mainly doesn't ruin the movie because Arthur is totally unimportant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, kind of. But yeah, Ricky Sorensen, I'm pretty sure, is the one who has the much, much deeper voice. And I think he still has done most of the lines. But I'm not sure because also he's the one singing. He's credited as being the one singing. That's what makes the world go round. Yeah. Where he has more of kind of the falsette. I I don't know. The most jarring moment for me has always been at the end when he's sitting on the throne and trying to run away. And he's like, oh, I wish Merlin were here. And then he goes, Merlin, Merlin. And it's like one continuous line, it feels like, that they split. It's very strange. Very, very strange. We meet Kay, and we meet Arthur, a scrawny little fellow of about 12. Yeah. They're hunting, he messes up, and he's gonna run into the forest and retrieve Kay's arrow. Yes, Kay was apparently hunting Bambi's mother. (laughs) Oh, there you go, there's a mom. (laughs) Except it's basically just a deer. They just stole, you know, Bambi's mother. (laughs) Right. There's a lot of reused animation in this movie, both from other movies and from this this own movie. <laughs> yeah, we've already talked about a lot of it and there's yeah, we yeah. we won't get to every example. No, no, there's too many. Just just be aware. However, the story <laughs> is funny enough to help you not think about that too much. This is our first time we meet Starving Wolf as Wart goes into the forest. Yes, absolutely. And this is this is truly a character you and I have talked about all the time <laughs> because it's just so funny. It's a wolf who is introduced as a threat. Yeah. You know, something maybe akin to like Peter and the Wolf type wolf or which he looks somewhat similar to True. somewhat or like the the rat in Lady and the Tramp where it's just this animalistic foe. Mm-hmm. But he just <laughs> He is the wolf who was abandoned (laughs) by God. He is the worst wolf. He knows nothing but heartbreak. And the protagonists are not even aware of his existence. Yeah. It's not that they defeat him. It's that most of the time they completely don't even know he's there. (laughs) Because he defeats himself. (laughs) Or the environment defeats him. Or just... Yeah, it's incredible. But yeah, and here he is. He's chewing on a bone. A stick gets knocked into his mouth. And he's not even really hunting the wart. He's just like standing underneath him with his mouth open, hoping he falls (laughs) into his mouth. I cannot imagine how this wolf is alive. Yeah. Apparently he finds enough bones, I guess. Who knows? (laughs) He's very, very emaciated. He's not long for this world. (laughs) It's true. And then Wart falls through the roof of Merlin's cottage and lands right in the chair that Merlin placed for him. Yeah, and this is like a really great little set. There's all kinds of... There's this green bubbling tube Mm -hmm. of some importance. And, you know, it's just eccentric, you know, wizard inventor cottage. (laughs) And... Every time Merlin and Archimedes talk, especially when they're talking to Wart or bickering with each other as they talk to Wart, it's just funny. Like, I love all the little banter in this scene, especially from Archimedes, who not only talks, but he talks a great deal better than you do. (laughs) It's true. And of course, Wart doesn't understand anything that's going on. I think my favorite Archimedes line here, for some reason, I just love this line delivery so much where Merlin talks about him being sensitive and he goes, sensitive? Huh? Who? What? What? (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, he does tend to say what almost as much as he says who. But yes, Merlin introduces himself as the greatest, most powerful wizard Merlin while pouring tea absentmindedly into his beard. Yes. <laughs> There's business with a model of a locomotive. There's business with an enchanted sugar dish. I love the animated sugar bowl. <laughs> the sugar bowl has quite the personality. He is an impudent piece of crockery, as Merlin calls him. There's all kinds of fun musical cues with a lot of Merlin's stuff. The George Bruns score carries a lot of the comedy. Mm -hmm. I was really picking up on that this time because we've been talking about him so much. It makes the Sugar Bowl stuff funnier. I love how Merlin has a dedicated musical sting for whenever he summons something to sit on. Right, right. Which is that like bass clarinet do 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 Yep. It makes you feel like when he does his magic, there's music that people can just hear. It really does heighten the movement and the comedy. The upshot of this is and again, like so much this movie does not really have a plot. This is what critics <laughs> didn't like about it at the time. It and kind a of lot of people still along. don't like about it now. Again, you just have to think of it as a comedy. Yeah. Every scene is just an excuse for jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a comedy. Yeah. Merlin's gonna become Wart's tutor because Wart needs an education. Yeah, so that was the point I was making is that like there isn't really much of a compelling reason. He's just like, You're showing up here and I know it's my job to give you your destiny, so I'm going to teach you. Yep. Basically you feel like Merlin has some sort of weird internal knowledge that tells him this kid is gonna be important for something. I don't know what, but it's my right. job to teach him some things, whether he wants it or not. He's traveled into the future and watched the sword in the stone is probably what's happened. Because at the end, he's like, oh, you're King Arthur. Oh, great. You're going to have a round table. It's all going to go really well for you. (laughs) Which, uh, of course, is especially funny. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, of course. And we get the the first real song. I mean, the second song after the opening. Mm -hmm. When it's time to pack up and uh, we get the song Higgitus Figgitus. So I think... This scene that starts with the packing up the cottage and ends with the wheezing wolf where that scene ends. (laughs) That section of the movie is my favorite. (laughs) An excellent choice, may I just say. Not mine, but an excellent choice. I think you'll like my choice too. Probably, since I do like, you know, most of this movie. The whole movie, yeah, basically. So yeah, there's the, he's gonna pack up his entire cottage into a carpet bag Sings the Higgitus Figgitus song. It's got all so many silly words. And this is also a great bit of sound design, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You were talking about, like, his magic being accompanied by song. Yeah. I don't know who really did, like, the music for this song and the sound design for it. I, Sherman Brothers, George Bruns, combination of both. Mm-hmm. But, like, everything about it, when he stands up and, you know, there's this super dramatic musical scene. He's dun. like, I want yeah. your attention, everything. And then it's immediately deflated when he's just like, we're packing to leave. And mm. then... Once he's, you know, done that silly little bit, then it really picks up with that da 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 It's just, it's so, like, I can hear it in my head. It's so well designed. It matches the action so well. And yes, this is your classic kind of Sherman Brothers nonsense song. It's very catchy. It's very fun. Carl Swenson, Merlin, has almost all of the songs in this movie. And they're all kind of these, again, like, patter songs where he's just singing nonsense words. But he sells it. He's like, hockety, pockety, walkety, Yes. And you're like, oh yes, what a great <laughs> song I'm hearing now. 
Yep. So he gets everything packed up into the bag. I love especially when the sugar bowl is cutting in line (laughs) and fighting. Yes. That poor old tea set is cracked enough. Yep. And then he elbows it again and it's like, you're also made of glass. (laughs) Everybody in this movie is so mean. It's true. It's a dark time. (laughs) It's a dark age. And yes, this is definitely the best wolf scene. There's also the part when they're leaving the cottage and Merlin shuts his beard in the door. (laughs) You can't forget that bit too. (laughs) He shuts his beard in the door and then instead of, you know, opening the door and getting his beard out, he pulls his beard till it comes out. It wraps around his whole head. Then he pulls it off his head with the stick and then it's like... And he's a big puffball head for a beard. He's a dandelion. He's a dandelion yes. with his beard. And then he, of course, he brushes it down and he's grumbling the whole time. But that that scene also just, that's part of why this is my favorite scene. It just cracks me up. For sure. And I do like the little bits of advice he's kind of dispensing throughout. Like here he's talking about, you know, you're always going to have problems. And that's the point of him getting his beard stuck. And he's like, see, right. look right here. This is a problem. It's true. And then he, he keeps talking. And if you're a little kid, you don't even have to understand what he's saying is how I feel like about that scene. It's different yeah. watching it as a, as an adult because you can understand what Merlin is actually talking about and how it you know, he's actually giving good advice. But when I was a kid, I remember watching it being like, oh, look at all the silly, funny things that are happening here, especially with starving wolf chasing them. Yes. Wandering through the forest as they go on and he's, you know, falling in the water and crashing into rocks and all kinds of things. They get to uh, the top of a hill and Merlin finally thinks to ask, hey, where is this castle you live in? And Wart's like, oh, it's the other way. So they turn around to go back. And then the wolf gets up to the top of the hill, wheezing and gasping. <laughs> Dubs a double take, noticing they're going the other direction. And just collapses in a heap. <laughs> you also do get to see in this scene that even though Merlin just wears a plain blue robe, he apparently wears pink BVDs underneath. Yes! It actually says BVD on his underpants. Yes, I actually, and I like, I like all the modern reference stuff. All that stuff works for me. I mean, let's be honest. I think the Disney movie this is closest in tone to is Emperor's New Groove. (laughs) Straight up constant comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up constant comedy, more modern pop culture references, but ones that are actually funny. Mm -hmm. We'll get to Oliver and company. (laughs) Now we kind of set the stage of the castle at the forest. What does he call it? Forest Suavage? The castle of the forest Suavage. Right. Now it is the forest (laughs) Sauvage, but that's okay, Sir Ector. (laughs) Sir Ector is Ward's foster father. Kay is therefore his foster brother. Yep. And they're big old jerks. And they're the, the whole point of this movie. I mean, it has a very you know clear spelled out theme which is like again sort of the theme of the arturian myths to a certain extent of you know intellect and romance and kindness and unity versus just being a a big jerk and hitting stuff with your sword right and wart i mean he he's a person of his time so he sees the appeal of he wants to be jousting and knights are so cool and all this and merlin's gonna teach him 
how to be smart, which it all kind of comes to nothing in the end. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's that's the idea. So Sir Ector and Kay are like pure brute force and they're very brutish and mean and they're making Wart work for hours and hours and hours in the kitchen. And Yeah, every time Wart does something wrong, he gets demerits, which are hours of kitchen duty. <laughs> I do like, uh, by the way, Merlin uh, and Archimedes are with him, of course, now. Yes. And he's talk and Ector's talking about how important it is to be strict with boys and you know this cruel parenting method and Archimedes is like and I most certainly agree <laughs> it's such a careful tone because describing it Again, everyone in this movie is so mean, Mm -hmm. but you're totally on board with like Merlin and Archimedes and their hearts are in the right place and Mm -hmm. they're not really for the most part malicious. It's, it's a very smart balance. Yep. So then Merlin, of course, has to introduce himself and Sir Ector never gets his name right. He calls him Marvin all the time. Right. Which I think is a mistake the first couple of times and a deliberate choice afterwards. (laughs) But yeah, he doesn't believe Merlin's a wizard, so Merlin does magic at him. Yep, a wizard blizzard. We get the first mention of black magic here, which is kind of sort of vaguely setting up Madame Mim. Yep, but Merlin's magic is only used for educational purposes. (laughs) Specifically, he said Merlin only uses his magic for good and useful things, and it's like, uh, (laughs) I don't know what movie you've been in up to this point. Well, it's extremely useful to shrink all your stuff to pack it into a single bag when you're moving. Yeah, I'm about to move and I wish (laughs) I was like salivating over that. I can just imagine you wandering around your house singing Hagatis Figatis just in hopes. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever works, man. But like at the same time in this scene, he summons an indoor blizzard just to mess with a guy who's being kind of mean to him. I mean... The, the upshot of this is Sir Ector's going to put him in the best room, the guest room in the Northwest Tower, which is so broken right. that it does not, it could not possibly be standing upright. It's extremely crumbly. And I, you know, there is some, some push and pull between Merlin and Sir Ector in this, which is kind of nice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that it's not just constantly Merlin scoring buckets, as here, mm-hmm. where somehow he is tricked into thinking the Northwest Tower is good, and then it starts raining. <laughs> I don't think Merlin believed ever believed it was good. I think he's just taking what he's given, as opposed to, I have so much power, you get better give me a proper room. Well, at first, when Sir Ector's talking about it, does it... And he says something like, oh, very good, very well. Whatever. I don't know. Once it starts raining, that is where he goes, you know, unwelcome guest room. Exactly. But it's, the whole point is like, but he's not going to keep me out. I don't care. Yep. This boy needs education. And then Sir Pelinor arrives, bringing big news from London. Big news! It's Pelinor, dash it all! Yes. As a kid, I think his name was, like, Pelinor dash it all, or something like that. <laughs> I'm not hearing people say dash it all. Yeah. But yes, Merlin sends Archimedes to spy on him, threatening to turn him into a human if he doesn't. <laughs> which is another little line I love here, is him saying, works every time. Just like magic. And it's like, (laughs) again, who's magic? But that's okay. That's the joke of it. That's why it's funny. Sir Pelinor has a push broom mustache that I think he could actually detach and use as a push broom. (laughs) I love his mustache and the way he swooshes it from side to side. I can't, I can't make that noise. That... (laughs) 
Yeah. I used to try to like wiggle my nose like that. Not that, you know, I have a mustache, but right. <laughs> even as a kid, I would try to wiggle my nose side to side like him. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to find out mustache sound effects also provided by James McDonald. Yeah, right. So the important news is that during the New Year's Day tournament that happens every year, the winner will get to be king of all England. Kay is going to be sent off to do this, and Wart might get to be his squire, which is his motivation for much of the movie, kind of. Yep. So Kay has to work really hard and get better and then get knighted so that he can participate in the tournament and hopefully become king. Uh, hopefully is only Sir Ector hoping this, <laughs> no one else. Even Pelinor, who's contributing to the training, later on goes, Kay the king? <laughs> what a dreadful thought. Yeah. So in the morning, we have jousting training. Yes. Which is, all the jousting scenes are pretty fun, even though mm. they're also pretty, like, obviously cheaply animated. Yeah. We get a lot of close-ups on helmets. Yeah. Kay is very bad at jousting. He's very bad at it. Kay's horse actually gets a black eye, which is one of those little visual gags I love so much in these movies. <laughs> this scene really, like, is a microcosm of the whole movie, because mm -hmm. Pelinor and Hector are discussing the science of jousting and how important it is, and Merlin is laughing at them, calling it a science, yeah. And talking about, you know, oh, there's so much more intellectual pursuits than just sitting on a horse and running at somebody with a stick. Right. And, uh, you know, he's talking about how it's going to be the two of them sort of battling for Arthur's soul. And uh, he goes, oh, I plan to cheat, of course. <laughs> Use magic. And that is the whole movie. Like, that's, that's, that's the whole thing. And it's good. Yep. And so, you know, we've had the jousting. That's, I guess, Sir Ector and Kay's lesson for the day. Now he's going to go have his lesson with Merlin. There's a cool visual idea here where the exposition for the scene is being delivered and we only see their reflections yeah, in the moat yeah. of the castle. Because they're going to turn into fish. Yep. Time for the fish lesson. Because that's a lesson. Yep. When they turn into fish, this is where I first noticed the color starting to look really bad. It feels like everything is a little more muddy than it should be. Yes. This is where I first really noticed it's a bit of a bad transfer. What you gonna do about it? <laughs> the animal scenes do look the worst. My theory it's on true. that is that the animal scenes have the most action. Yeah. So it's where you get the most movement. And that's where you really see it's like, true. oh, these characters do not look like they're on these backgrounds, which they're not. Yeah. We've talked about how the Blu-ray process that disney does works and sometimes doesn't work <laughs> but, yeah but you're right the muddy the the colors are really muddy all of the animal stuff and i think maybe the other reason it's noticeable is because arthur in all of his animal forms is supposed to be bright orange yeah and instead he's like brown he is he's very brown oh well so this is where merlin sings the song that's what makes the world go round yeah. <laughs> sure, Merlin. And I guess the lesson is mainly about opposites, at least in this song. Yeah. Because, like, you know, he's talking about, like, for every square. And Arthur's like, there is a round. Yeah. 
For every high, there is a low. I do like the spooky tickle cave. Yes. <laughs> There's a spooky looking cave. They swim through it and it's tall grass that tickles them. And they go back and get tickled again. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I feel like this is, even though, again, it's like a very cheap effect. It, it definitely <laughs> stuck out in my mind. Like, it is. because It feels like an iconic moment. Because, you know, they, they swim into the cave, but you don't actually see them. You're just like sliding along the outside of the cave. And yet it works. That part is, you know, because it does look like such a scary cave and that's where Merlin starts singing about like and so my lad as I've explained nothing ventured nothing gained which yeah uh, yeah uh, yeah is that what you've been explaining I know it's true a lot of the things he says it's like is that really what you meant to say but again I think this is all part of the joke I'm not like trying to score points on the movie I think that's the whole I think that's what the movie is doing right eventually though they come across a a pike which is a big, dangerous fish, especially if you're a little fish. Pike. It looks like a barracuda. Yes, and so now he Merlin is trying to teach him brains over brawn. This is my favorite Merlin lesson, which is Merlin gets stuck in a helmet, and then he's like, here's the lesson. I'm not turning you into a human until you either outsmart the pike or die. <laughs> so true the only reason he does not die is because archimedes intervenes yep. which is this good nice character moment for archimedes where he actually does care about war yep and he saves his life even though he claims he was going to eat him leading to the end of this scene another great archimedes just exclamation <laughs> as he's drying off and his turn to turn into a giant poof yes where he goes pin feathers and Gully fluff. Yes. <laughs> As he poofs out. So the lesson that Arthur has learned here is that uh, he will be saved from peril and doesn't actually have to learn a lesson. Uh, the universe will intervene, which will serve yeah, him yeah. well at the end of this movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. That's actually uh, the correct lesson to learn. <laughs> it's true. But uh, as punishment for him telling the fish story, get it? Yep. He has to scrub infinity dishes. He does. So much kitchen duty. The pots, everything is filthy. It's like every dish in the entire world has been <laughs> covered in grease and put in this kitchen for him to wash. Some of them appear to be covered like in a full pie. Like there's <laughs> so much on them. It's true. Merlin's like, Arthur, we haven't talked for 40 minutes. How would you like to be a squirrel? Exactly. That is... <laughs> is a tiny animal with enormous problems. Because learning about the problems animals have will make you a better person. Most of Merlin's lessons end up being the lesson that everything in the world is trying to kill you. (laughs) Which, solid lesson. Kids, internalize that now. You will never be safe. (laughs) But, of course... Ward is like, I can't go on a squirrel adventure with you. I have to do all these dishes. So Merlin decides he's going to automate the dishwashing because, you know, shirking your duties <laughs> for somebody else to do them is exactly the lesson you need to learn. But he uses a little higgitus figgitus again. It's not a full separate song, but sings a little bit of that and gets the dishes going. It's a great little dishes washing song, though, the, the musical background for it, as you yes, said. Yes, and it, again, this is like, just a jazz song, yep. which is nice. 
but you know, not not what you would expect from an Arturian legend movie that was taking itself seriously at all. This has my favorite of the magic words. For some reason, I always think about this, and I've made jokes about this to you in the past, which is rubbity, scrubbity, sweepity, flu. <laughs> For some reason, that's just so funny to me when he goes flu. <laughs> and they just leave that running, and they're like, don't worry, this will go great, yep, obviously. Yep, yep. We'll just clean up the whole kitchen while we're gone. Let's go be squirrels. Listen, I've seen the first <laughs> three minutes of the Sorcerer's Apprentice short, and I'm pretty sure it all went great after those three minutes. Yeah. Magical cleaning always seems to get into some trouble, even in Sleeping Beauty. That's and true. Meriwether's using the magic to clean, but it doesn't take enough of her attention, so <laughs> she starts a fight. <laughs> Even the great Meriwether could not handle magic brooms. Yeah. That's what Disney movies have taught us is that's the hardest spell. Stop, Mop. I like that we cut straight to them being squirrels. Like, we've already seen the preamble to the fish scene. You don't need it again. Yep. The transformation. They're jumping around. He's trying to explain gravity. Wart's not getting it. Merlin's lessons are so insane and scattered. And so yep. beyond the level of a medieval peasant... It's true. I think it's during the fish scene that we find out that Wart is an orphan. And he's talking about like being a squire would be a huge honor for me and pretty much is the best I can aspire to. And it's like, yeah, he's I mean, Merlin gives him, you know, crap for this because he's like, well, you know, you could be so much more. And it's like, well, not it's not really. unreasonable for <laughs> Wart to feel that way. Yes. If, you know, magic and God didn't intervene. Yes. Wart is kind of a realist. Yes. He's like. All this knowledge stuff is great, and I like learning this stuff from you. It's wonderful. But I also have to think about, how am I going to live? <laughs> right. My life expectancy is 13. <laughs> it's medieval England, and I'm 12. Yep. And have no familial connections. Exactly. Yeah, you'd think Merlin's lessons would start with, like, bathing so you don't die of disease. <laughs> Yeah, but Merlin is not about the practical lessons like that. No, he's... Merlin is, again, he's too scatterbrained. He's too... <laughs> part of his brain is in the future, and he doesn't understand the now, which we'll get to later. Anyway... His lessons are, I think it would be fun if we were squirrels. <laughs> hey, we're jumping. I'll use this to talk about gravity. Oh, now a girl squirrel is way too interested in you. Now this is a lesson about love. Not Squirrel Girl, a girl squirrel. <laughs> squirrel Girl is your favorite superhero. Yes. Girl Squirrel is a very weird part of this movie. Yep. Girl Squirrel falls in love with Wart. He tries to push her away. She doesn't get it. Because they still are speaking human and the squirrels are speaking squirrel and they can't understand each other. Which is a little bit weird, but mm -hmm. okay. And they are constantly trying to talk to the squirrels. Yeah. Like Merlin... Basically, Merlin is like, ha ha ha, you're getting chased by this female squirrel. This is funny. I'm gonna sing you a song called The Most Befuddling Thing. And then a female squirrel is chasing him and he's like, well, now this isn't funny anymore. It's exactly right. An older female squirrel. He's trying to reason with the girl squirrel that's interested in him. And it's like, what do you think this is going achieve, Merlin? Exactly. They cannot understand <laughs> these words you are speaking. You have to speak in ye olde English. <laughs> a frog bith a small beastie. <laughs> the girl squirrel, though, does save wart squirrel from the starving wolf. And then she's like, I've got him now. Not that she needs to have bothered. <laughs> 
But then, of course, Merlin changes them back into people, and she's heartbroken when he gets turned back into a boy. Yeah, and it's played for genuine sadness, which is... uh, Pathos. Yeah, which is a little weird. Not necessarily bad. I don't know. This whole scene is quite strange. It is kind of strange. It's a very weird idea. Why are we heartbreaking the squirrels? (laughs) But I feel like the lesson of this lesson um, is... Love is the strongest force on earth. So like the first one officially is brains over brawn. This one is officially love is the strongest force on earth. Still, it's like, you know, maybe we could have done these lessons a little differently. (laughs) That's okay. It's funny. That's the point. (laughs) Correct. And uh, speaking of funny, obviously this one moment of of pathos is immediately undercut by Serecta! Serecta! (laughs) The kitchen! The last uh, Disney performance of Barbara Jo Allen. Yep. And that's practically her only line. I know mm-hmm. technically she has more, but the only thing I ever remember is her going, Serecta! And there's much chaos. Because, with the yes, because she says the kitchen is full of black magic. So Serecta and Kay go down to try to figure out what's going on and fight the dishes, which leads to quite a lot of humor. And Merlin stops the magic, and Serecta is very angry at him. He calls it black magic of the worst kind. <laughs> cleaning things <laughs> yes very pointed merlin is now basically not welcome at the castle but also like i guess if you're gonna hang around there's nothing we can do about it just maybe don't show yourself yes Serector and Kay are bashing on merlin when he's gone and worried about the horrible things he might do and wart stands up for him and then he gets punished being told he can't be Kay's squire anymore. Hobbs is going to be Kay's squire. Hobbs, the often mentioned but never seen. <laughs> the stuffed tiger. <laughs> this should be Wart's big moment, because it seems like, in a movie that had any interest in having a real plot, mm-hmm. I think it would be. It is a big moment in context, it just kind of comes to nothing. Yeah. Which is, you know, yeah, the, the main line he says that I feel like is the most important line, and, you know, the thesis statement of this movie and a good lesson for anyone to to learn is just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it's wrong yes very true very good lesson and you it's like he is learning something as scattered as yes merlin's teaching has been he is learning something yeah and they call it talk about him wart losing his temper as popping off which is why i was joking about <laughs> You know, in the last movie, popping off was killing the puppies. And in this one, popping off is losing your temper. I shouldn't have popped off. (laughs) This is the emotional scene that actually works, I think. I would say the only emotional scene that works for me in the movie. Part of it is the return of the song, What Do We Do? Yeah. Yeah. So Wart is sitting there dejected and Merlin comes back and is like, I'm sorry. I know that Squire thing meant a lot to you. And like the way Merlin comes in mm-hmm. here is not chaotic for once. Right. You know, he just sort of appears, which, mm-hmm. yeah, it's all very effective. Yep. But basically he tells him, focus on your education now. You can only go up from here. And then we have another scene that I love because, again, I love Archimedes. And the in the next lesson, which starts with Merlin trying to explain that the world is round. <laughs> Archimedes then gets to take over as the headmaster. Yeah, because he takes issue with the way Marv- Marvin. I almost Marvin. called him Marvin. Jeez. Marvin. 
Marvin, Marvin, Marvin. Merlin is teaching. He's like, you can't fill him. You can't learn from the future. Right. It hasn't happened yet. You need to learn from the past. <laughs> He's like, okay, so now here's my very practical method of instruction. Read this mountain of books. Yep. That, my boy, is a mountain of knowledge. <laughs> but I can't read. I think in one of the uh, Reitherman boys' voices, because it sounds very odd when he says that. <laughs> yes. And this is where probably these lessons should have started. Exactly. The ABCs. And meanwhile, while Archimedes is finally trying to give Arthur a usable lesson, (laughs) Merlin is playing with toys. Exactly. Oh, I'm just, I'm just doing something on my own over here. I'm not trying to get your attention with my flying machine model. Oh my mm. gosh, this is funny. Because of course he tangles the flying machine in his beard. <laughs> it plummets. He almost falls out the window and dies. And what really gets me again is Archimedes going, man will fly all right, just like a rock. And then laughing for 25 minutes. Oh my goodness. He laughs for so long. And it's so funny the way he laughs. And they cut back and forth between him laughing and Merlin smoking his pipe angrily. I love that Merlin, Merlin feels like he's gotten in the last (laughs) word. He's giving him the silent treatment. He's smoking his pipe angrily, as you say, but the laughter goes on for so long long. that he has to interject again. Yes. Oh, it's funny. It's it's a great moment. And then Wart is going on about how he is hoping that someday man will be able to fly. He's always dreamed about flying. A rare moment of personality for the boy. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, Merlin takes advantage of that to change him into a bird. And Archimedes gets to continue being his teacher. More fun bickering and another Archimedes line reading I love when Merlin's like, Listen, I understand the principles of flight and physics and everything way better than you. And he goes, I happen to be a bird. Exactly. And they have a nice moment, Archimedes mm-hmm. and Wart flying. And then, of course, once again, <laughs> Wart has been uh, outside for two seconds. So something's going to kill him. Hawk! 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 The hawk is chasing him now. Only him, not Archimedes, because he's the little bird. <laughs> and I always forget that this is one continuous scene yeah. where to get away from the hawk, for once, Wart gets to escape under his own recognizance. It's I mean, true. geez. He flies once again into the spooky forest and into a mysterious cottage owned by Mad Madam Min. It's true. Who, while she is probably the biggest villain in this movie, I feel like she's more of a Merlin villain than an Arthur villain. Yeah, I can't remember when I was reading the Bill Pete quote earlier if I mentioned that he referred to them as being like an old married couple. Yeah, you did mention that. Well, I'll say it again. It's a good insight. (laughs) So first of all, this is my favorite scene. Ah. Everything with Madame Mim, if if we are counting the wizard's duel and the like song in the card- cottage and the stuff where she's just with Wart mm-hmm. as two separate scenes, I think I would pick the stuff in the cottage. But no, you can both make of them... it two I mean, I, t- I picked a long segment for my favorite yeah. scene. Everything with Madame Mim <laughs> is my favorite. I love her. I love this whole sequence. I love the song, and I have to shout out, Madame Mim was voiced by Martha Wentworth. Yep. 
uh, who is known as the actress of a hundred voices. <laughs> she was on a lot of radio and well, she was in a lot of stage productions first and a lot of radio. And then she did some voice acting uh, in 101 Dalmatians. She's several voices, Nanny, Queenie, the cow and Lucy, the goose. Mm-hmm. And she's Madame Mim in this, which was her final film appearance. Yeah. And she died not long after this, because when this movie came out, she was in her 70s. Wow. She gets a lot of uh, intensity in her voice. <laughs> I almost wonder if she died not too long after because she put every ounce of energy into this performance, (laughs) which I think is just maybe the best performance in this movie. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. She does so much screaming and so she just she's doing the most and she knows when to be creepy and, (laughs) and her song. Of course, she has. Uh, her song probably my favorite song of the movie and again yep. a, a, a strong contender for the podcast song where she's basically describing herself yep and she's talking about all the uh, stuff she could do all the black magic black sorcery yep and she always ends by screaming i i crack up so much <laughs> she at one point in the song she turns herself into a beautiful woman yep. she's doing a very beautiful dance and she goes, <laughs> but it's only skin deep for Zim Zabram Zim. I'm an ugly old creep. <laughs> she just screams yes. the last line of the song. Yes. She's truly mad. Mm-hmm. The magnificent, marvelous, mad, 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 mad. Madam Mim. <laughs> yeah, she calls herself mad. <laughs> This is also, by the way, the first song in the movie, if you don't count the opening song, not sung by Merlin. It's true. Madame Mim is also the only villain in this movie who reads like a real threat. Probably because, as you say, everything is a threat to Wart. A stiff breeze is a threat to (laughs) Wart. She's actually a threat to Merlin. Yeah, and therefore also a threat to Wart. And she is creepy. I think parts of the song are creepy. And then afterwards, when she closes the door and is like, I'm just going to have to destroy you. And she's toying with him. She turns into a cat. Because she wants to make it a game. Yep, she loves games. She loves destroying people. Of course, Merlin arrives just in time. Yep. And we get the wizard's duel, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing comedically. Yep. It's amazing dramatically. She makes rules at the beginning of the duel and Archimedes rightly points out she only wants rules so she can break them. And the sky is like way scarier here. Yeah, the colors are very different. And I feel like this is some of the best animation in the movie. And I like how much it does with mostly visual storytelling where like Merlin pretty much always turns into a prey animal. But she mostly turns into predators. Yeah. And it just shows their difference in philosophy. And again, the point of the movie, more artfully than the scenes where where Merlin is just saying, this is the theme of the movie. Just showing how he picks, you know, cunning and fast right. and small. And she's all big and mean and destructive. Yes. And- He's trying to illustrate using your brain will win. And he does seem to be in real peril. I mean, he does yeah. win and maybe... He wins with such a trump card that maybe he like always kind of knew he was going to do that. But (laughs) throughout. Yes. After she cheats and turns into a dragon where we get 
the exact same musical theme <laughs> from Sleeping Beauty with the dragon. I never noticed that before. As many times as I've seen both of these movies, I've never watched them this close together, obviously. Yeah, no, it's true. It is straight up the reused music. And I also have to say, I made the comment while we were watching, <laughs> I've always thought of this as being a good looking movie, yeah. and it is by and large. Yeah. But when you watch it so close to Sleeping Beauty, same with 101 Dalmatians, you're like, oh, this isn't Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> He then turns into a germ. I did not write down the name of the disease he supposedly it's is. It's made up. It's made up, I know. And it's the one, like, action one-liner he has when he's like, And you've caught me, Mim! Yes. And it's a clever idea, and Merlin gets to be a big hero, yep. and you get to actually see that he is powerful and impressive. <laughs> and... and the lesson at the end that Wart says he learned is, what, uh, knowledge and... Wisdom is the real power. Which I almost feel like he's just saying because he's like, that's always the lesson. <laughs> I love Mim's send-off too, yep. where Martha Wentworth is just screaming, I hate sunshine! I hate, hate, hate! Horrible, hate. wholesome sunshine. And Merlin says it was worth it, lad, if you learned something from it. Mm -hmm. I just think it's kind of the best self like this movie is practically episodes yes. you know you feel like it could be episodes of a, a very short <laughs> TV show and this like feels like a self-contained story that I really just enjoy yep uh, and then is the most memorable everybody's favorite song the blue oak tree <laughs> So on my Blu-ray, there is a special feature with the Sherman brothers talking about the music for this movie. And they also talk about the songs that were deleted, including Blue Oak Tree, which is mostly deleted. That was a song they wrote for, as they, they put it, all the knights of the castle to sing to show how ridiculous they are. The song is all about how much they revere basically their banner blue oak tree on a white field yeah and what the different colors symbolize and we're gonna feast all night and fight all day and this is our life and isn't it great and that's what the whole song is about but you only get like two lines of it that sir ector and pelinor i think or k or yes. all three of them i don't know it's pelinor are singing on christmas eve because time has passed now to be fair, all of the knights of the castle are singing it. I think the Sherman <laughs> brothers just might have expected there to be more than three I characters. Know. It's true. They, but, you know, they, they didn't want to pay for more people, I guess. <laughs> You know, we pretty quickly get to the end of things here. It's Christmas-ish. It's yep. got to be very close to New Year's. Well, because they said they were going to knight Kay on Christmas, so he's knighted now. Kay, who is, we haven't talked about much, but I mean, he is just the epitome of all things wrong with Brute Strength. Yes, like, he's, he just seems like a big dumb bully. Yep, the idea of him being a king is truly horrifying, but also <laughs> kind of what most kings historically have been is this kind of jerk. <laughs> yep, but... Now the scullery maid has her last line. Hobbs has come down with the mumps. So Wart gets to be K-Squire again. He's so surprised that he repeats an animation loop of him <laughs> falling down the stairs. Yeah. And now when he, you know, tells the wizard and friends that the roles have kind of changed because Archimedes is being a little more nice and encouraging and Merlin uh, has gone back on his earlier statement of I know how much being a squire meant to you and he's yelling at him and screaming he's at like, him. He's like, I thought that you were going to be more than this. But then I, I like that Wart talks back. Yes. And he's like, I'm nobody. This is what I can hope for. This is it. 
What do you want from me? I can't get any better than this. Getting to be a squire is like as high as I can aspire. All this education is great and I like it, but it's not helpful for what I need. I can't be an old lunatic in the woods like you. Yeah. Because I have to eat. So Merlin loses his temper and says, blow me to Bermuda. And then he turns into a rocket and blasts off. (laughs) Ah, what a funny piece of animation. And this is, I mean, to me, this is kind of the failing of this movie is is the ending, which like, it has to be the ending. He's got to pull the sword from the stone. It's the name of the movie. It's the point of why we're here. But like, with the story they've set up so far, he should have to somehow win the day by being smart, by Mm -hmm. having internalized some of Merlin's lessons. Really, you know, I feel like in the most straightforward version of the script, he should win the joust despite being scrawny and lame, and he should win it by somehow, you know, outsmarting his competition. Yeah. And that's how he would become king or something. Instead, he happens to forget Kay's sword. Which means he's bad at his squire job. (laughs) Yeah, he's very bad at his job. He wanders over trying to find a sword. He happens to find the sword in the stone. He pulls it out. He's crowned King of England. Merlin shows up and he doesn't apologize. He hasn't changed. Wart hasn't changed. He's just like, oh, everything worked out. Cool. (laughs) Glad you resolved this while I was out of office. (laughs) And that to me is what, what keeps this movie from being one of my favorites is, and I know like mostly we're here for the comedy and the comedy is still good, but it would be nice if it amounted to anything at all. Yeah. You feel like all those lessons should come together to be something at the end. Yeah. This story would basically have played out the same way without Merlin's involvement. (laughs) You know, he would have been the squire and then he would have probably also found the sword. Like, Well, maybe. It is Archimedes who points out the sword. But yeah, it is funny that it's after, like, Merlin leaves, so he's alone when he finds it. I don't know, it's just... I agree that it's the story is a little weak, but it's still fun. It's got some good visuals when he touches the sword and there's like a heavenly choir and light coming down. And he's like, that's weird. Let me get out of here. (laughs) And I appreciate Thurl Ravenscroft in his meatiest role yet as a knight (laughs) with a face. Okay, so I'm not sure if this is something I knew or I don't know how I figured this out. So when we're watching the movie... I'm looking at Thurl Ravenscroft's character and listening to him and thinking, because he's got black hair. Right. I was like, I bet his name is Black Bart. Like, he just looks like a Black Bart. And that's his name. Yes, he's listed as Sir Bart. That's his character's name. Sir Bart or Black (laughs) Bart. And I'm like, did I know that and just forgot? And I just popped up in my head? How did I figure that out? (laughs) It kind of creeped me out when I was looking stuff up today and going, wait, wait, wait. That really is his name? (laughs) But I'm just going to assume that somewhere along the lines, I knew that and forgot. (laughs) I just wrote him in my notes as Thurl Raven's Knight. (laughs) Hold everything. Someone's Someone's pulled pulled the the sword from the stone. Yes. He's got a very, such a lovely resonance to his voice. Yes! <laughs> I would just listen to him. Why couldn't he have been? Well, because he sounds too good to be any of the mean characters. It's true. Mm-hmm. Listen, we'll get, to, we'll get to a movie where he has a major, major role eventually. 
actually, in the next miniseries. And I will say, there is a genuinely touching moment in this that I don't feel like is really earned at all. But when Sir Ector bows down and, you know, also orders, and he says, forgive me, son, forgive me. Yep. And then he orders Kay to bow down. That is an affecting moment. Yep. It's not earned, but... It like the music, the performance, the animation. It pulls the magic trick Sleeping Beauty does for its entire runtime for that moment of, you know, you feel the emotions here, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) And yeah, and then they're on this gorgeous throne room set with a billion banners. Which looks uh, very much like the set from the opening of Sleeping Beauty. (laughs) Yeah. And we just kind of get a few final jokes out here, which is Arthur running around trying to leave. And every time he opens the door, it's just screaming, Hail, King Arthur! Long live the king! Yeah, he's in this gigantic throne room. He and Archimedes are the only ones in there. But apparently standing around outside, making sure he can't leave, is like everyone else in the kingdom just shouting, Hail, King Arthur, anytime (laughs) he opens a door. You just sit in there, boy, and be the king. (laughs) Whatever kings do, I don't know, king it up in there. Merlin comes back in his Bermuda shorts and his Hawaiian shirt and his sunglasses, and he's like, back from the 21st century. And let me tell you, boy, you can keep it. One big modern mess, which is just, (laughs) it's the perfect way to pay. They can't pay off the story, but they can pay off that joke. Yes. Beautifully. Yes. And he's all excited. He's like, oh, you're going to be a king. You're going to be a great king. You'll have a round table. And we end on a joke and a line I've always loved, which (laughs) because it so epitomizes Merlin's useless lessons and his useless approach to teaching. And when I was a kid, I was just like, that's true. That makes sense. Yeah. Which is where he, you know, he's talking about they might even make a motion picture about you someday. Wink, wink. And Arthur's like, a motion picture? It's sort of like television, but without commercials. (laughs) Hail King Arthur, long live the king. And yes, it's so funny because (laughs) like you said, as a child, you're like, of course, that's what a motion picture is. And then you get older and you're like, wait a minute. He doesn't know what. Any of these things are. Also, motion pictures came before television. (laughs) And also, this is... You could not pick more useless information or a more useless way to... Like, a motion picture is like, in the future, there will be this, you know, type of entertainment where it's like several tapestries played very quick. Instead, he's (laughs) like, oh, it's like television without commercials. Right, exactly. Unhelpful. But it's okay, because it's funny joke, and it ends great. It's the perfect ending for this movie. Uh, and then what happened next for King Arthur? Who knows? Not important. Unimportant. We ha- He had a very gr- happy life and a long, wonderful reign. And he turned the whole thing around. And England was a great place. <laughs> <laughs> and it never did anything wrong. <laughs> yep. Yep. In the yep, future. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Died quietly in his bed. <laughs> <laughs> Surrounded by... Loved ones. Loved ones. <laughs> Only a few of whom were squirrels. <laughs> no, I mean, that was apparently a very deliberate choice. I mean, of course, Bill Pete takes credit for this, but it, it was a deliberate choice of like, the only way you can make a kid-friendly version of the Arturian legend is to set the whole thing pre-most of the Arturian legend. <laughs> right. We're gonna, like, take the first page of it, and we're gonna kind of expand that. <laughs> He's not even going to be a king. We should probably get on to sequels, spin-offs, remakes, rides, and reboots. 
even though there is not a lot. There's not a lot. Weirdly, Madame Mim appears to be the character with the most staying power. She shows up in a lot of Disney villain-related stuff. She's in, you know, Mickey's House of Villains, which I think we've talked about in the past. Yep. She entered the Donald Duck universe in the comics, where she would team up with Magica Dispel and the Beagle Boys. That's kind of funny. She was also in the Mickey Mouse comic. She just showed up in a lot of those European comics yeah. as a villain. Yeah. She showed up in uh, a video game called World of Illusion, mm. uh, a Disney video game for the Sega Genesis. Again, weirdly, she has a lot of staying power. Yeah. And it begs the question, when's she going to be in Villainous? <laughs> there you go. They have apparently announced a live action remake, but it doesn't seem to have gone anywhere for a couple of years. Yeah, the Delarm supposedly entered development in 2015. And then supposedly was being worked to get on again in 2018. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they make it because I feel like I heard something about it more recently. I would assume they would do one because it does feel... I mean, first of all, they're running out of movies to do Delarms for. <laughs> and this one feels like a pretty easy fit. It's true. Even though it would be terrible. Yeah. Like, I don't know. what Live action fish and squirrels and birds. You know, and this movie doesn't have a story to adapt. Are you just going to do the same jokes again? But where? Oh, yeah. am I kidding? It's a Delarm. They are going to do the same jokes again, but worse. That will be their take. <laughs> yeah, the director of that thing is Juan Carlos Fresnadillo, who has only, almost only, done uh, bad remakes and bad sequels to and of superior films. So, there yeah, okay. Go ahead, yeah, Sword in the Stone makes sense. The other, only other Disney movies really that have dealt with King Arthur legend are based on A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Because we have Unidentified Flying Oddball, which is basically a spaceman in King Arthur's Court, and A Kid in King Arthur's Court are the two movies that are Disney movies that have... Arthur in them. There is a movie though on Disney Plus, which you already mentioned, The Kid Who Would Be King, which I think is f my favorite live action King Arthur movie. <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's the characters are all children, so it doesn't go into any of the more disturbing elements. Modern day British children. Yes. Because it being a modern adaptation is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, it's directed by Joe Cornish, who, if you're old enough to watch it, did a great uh, horror movie called Attack the Block, horror action movie that was kind of John Boyega's big breakout. It's it's a very, very clever film. And Kid Who Would Be King, which is actually a movie we can recommend to kids, yes. has that same amount of cleverness, though, where it includes a lot of, like, smart but not overly preachy social commentary. It's the only adaptation of the Arturian legend I've seen, which includes a scene where they talk about how the divine right of kings is bad. Yeah. It's very funny and very clever. And yep. no, I love that movie. It has a great final action set piece. It does. Yeah, I just rewatched that one uh, earlier this year. Holds up. And yes, bizarrely, we found out that it was on Disney Plus as of just recently because yeah. it was distributed in the United States by 20th Century Fox, which means it's now a Disney film, mm -hmm. which, uh, whatever. <laughs> hey, it means it's easily accessible now. Exactly. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have Disney Plus so you can watch it and you should. It's a movie that did not get a lot of attention. It was a huge uh, commercial flop. But it's a great movie. Really deserves a reevaluation. When it comes to rides at Disneyland, there's the King Arthur Carousel. 
And that's it. <laughs> they also, um, nearby to the King Arthur carousel, they had the sword in the stone ceremony. I don't know if you remember seeing the, no. the sword in the stone at Disneyland. One time when it was in between shows, we were hanging out and you guys were trying to pull the sword. This sounds vaguely familiar now. Do we have like pictures of this? Is that what I'm thinking? I believe we do have pictures of you and your brother yanking on the sword. Yeah, we weren't worthy. <laughs> I guess. Well, nobody's ever fully worthy. I don't know if you, I don't know that we ever sat and participated in the show, but basically how it goes, you know, Merlin comes out and it's like King Arthur had to go on vacation. So we need somebody to be, you know, substitute king of fantasy land basically while he's gone and so children get to come up and try to pull the sword and somebody is always allowed to pull it slightly like they get to pull up about this much of this about you know three inches of the sword yay yeah you're king of fantasy land until the next time we do this show <laughs> <laughs> right it's just a fun little thing i'm not actually sure they do that anymore one pl- site i was on made it seem like they don't have that show now but I have no idea. I love that I'm looking up the uh, pictures of the park versions of Merlin. Mm-hmm. And there have been several costumes throughout the years. Yeah. All of them are more involved than the actual Merlin <laughs> costume, which would be as follows. A blue blanket, a costume store beard, little glasses, and another blue blanket on your head. <laughs> taped into a cone shape. Apparently it does say here... It says you can't, no, no longer can meet Merlin. They might bring it back. They might bring it back. Who knows? That's they they put things away and bring them back. But again, if it wasn't very popular, which it always seems like this movie feels forgotten. Anyway, despite being a silver era film, and again, and you know, um, I would say one of the best of the silver era, which kind of makes it one of the best <laughs> of Disney movies. Yeah. No, I, it, it's a lot of fun, and in fact, you know, let's uh, let's rank this movie on a numerical rating system. Just kidding. Would you recommend <laughs> this movie, and would you show it to a child? Yes, I would recommend this movie. Total shock. <laughs> Didn't we start out the silver era saying basically a blanket? Yes, pretty yeah. much. Anyway, um. Would I show this to a child? Yes. I don't think there's anything scary enough in here to feel like can't show this to a child. Even though Merlin will sometimes talk over your child's head, there is plenty (laughs) of silly things going on while he does it that they will be entertained. And yes, I did show this to you probably when you were quite little. (laughs) I remember being very mildly perturbed by Madame Mim, specifically the part where she turns super ugly yeah she's like a pig face demon thing (laughs) scared me a little bit but it's very short and the whole sequence is so silly and like the movie is is very light so you're i agree you're not gonna get scared and of course i agree on recommending it Mm -hmm. well that's gonna do it for me mom the mouse now if you have any questions for us uh you should send those because we're coming close to the end of a mini series and we are planning to do a mailbag episode in between this mini series uh the silver era and the next one on the bronze era we're going to talk a little more about that next week but send in your questions to me mom mouse at gmail.com that's m e m o m m o u s c at <laughs> gmail.com send in your questions about Anything Disney related doesn't have to be just the the things we normally talk about. You can ask us to talk more about the kid who would be king and (laughs) why Angus Emery should have won Best Supporting Actor that year. And I'm not even kidding. Yep. You should also come back next week as we finalize the Silver Era. We wrap it all up with 1967's The Jungle Book, the last movie to have any involvement from Walt Disney. Mom. What do you think of that movie? It is a fun movie, but it was it was never one of my all-time favorites. 
interesting. This might be, I mean, we'll have to rewatch it, but this could be one that's kind of the reverse of this week where I like it a lot more than you. We will see. And it may be that we'll watch it again and I'll be like, oh, wait, I like this better than I thought. Like uh, Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) Until then, I'm me. I'm mom. And it all started with a mouse. A podcast. It's sort of like radio, without commercials. Actually, with a lot more commercials.